Um, today, again, we are going to be con uh, continuing on Matthew. We've just been walking through uh, the book of Matthew little by little, um, following along with Jesus. And today, in many ways, um, there's a conclusion to the series and the section that we have been looking at. So, but today, we're going to be starting on uh, chapter 9, verse 27 through 34. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you open them up, and we're going to go there. If you don't have a Bible, um, let us know, and we can get you one. We've got some paper Bibles available, or you can pull it up on your church app. Look at that. I'm just going to keep promoing that one uh, for the next few weeks. So this is Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 through 34. And if you weren't here last week, what we're doing is we're coming near the end of uh, a part, a section of Jesus' story where he's been going from miracle to miracle to miracle to miracle to miracle. And he had just finished in this incredible miracle with, uh, he had just healed a woman who'd been bleeding uh, for 12 years. And then after that, he'd raised a girl back to life who had died. And news was spreading about him. And so we start here in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. It says this. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he'd gone indoors, the blind men came in to meet him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. And then he touched their eyes, and he said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see to it that no one knows about this, he says. It's the most human part. But then they went out and they spread the news about him all over the region. And while they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who'd been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and they said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees who were there said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Let's pray. Jesus, as we again come to look at these stories of you, as we, become, as we come again to this narrative about who you are, I pray that your spirit will transform these words, take them off of the page, and into our hearts. Let the transforming power that you exhibited here be found amongst us today, we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, before we continue on with Matthew, I want to nerd out a little bit with you. If you will permit me, I'm going to be a slight bit of a nerd. Um, has anyone else been enjoying the new Star Wars series that has come out? Yeah, okay, all right, cool. Watch what this happened. Half of you turned off in a second and half of you were here for the rest of the sermon, just like that. So if you don't know, if you're not a Star Wars nerd, uh, Star Wars, you know, incredible saga, Luke and Darth Vader, the whole thing. Some, wow, we are getting more interaction for this than I do about Jesus. I'm just gonna put that out there. All right, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay. Star Wars is an incredible saga. It, it's huge in the mythology of the West, right? It's just a huge part of the story. And recently, Disney has released a mini-series of, it's been like the most expected series because it follows on the journey of Obi-Wan Kenobi. 
who was, who was the mentor to Anakin Skywalker, who becomes Darth Vader. Obi-Wan Kenobi is also the mentor to Luke Skywalker, who ends up saving the whole journey. Most of you probably will be aware of this, and if you don't, don't worry, it won't last too much long. Don't worry, there are no spoilers here. But one of the things that I love about Star Wars, particularly with the new Star Wars, is they are filled with what we now call Easter eggs. You know, you know what that phrase is, Easter eggs? It's little references, little uh, context or, or things that are referencing something else in the series. And it happens all the time. In every Star Wars movie, there's a line where someone says, I got a bad feeling about this. And you wait for it every time. Somebody in every Star Wars film will say it. And you wait for it, and you're like, there it is. He said the thing. And that happens all the time. In Obi-Wan Kenobi, we're all waiting for the moment when he says, hello there. See? It's like an iconic saying that we're waiting for him to say it. And in this most recent episode of Obi-Wan, I'm not, there's no spoilers, so don't worry if you haven't seen it. But again, there's this moment where Anakin and Obi-Wan in a flashback are talking, and Anakin simply says the phrase, it's over. Now, if you don't know anything about Star Wars, and you haven't watched the series, you're kind of like, okay, that's cool, they're fighting, Anakin says it's over, no big deal. But for those of us who've watched Star Wars and love Star Wars, when Anakin says it's over at the end of the battle, it's this deeply moving moment because at the end of the third film, Anakin and Obi-Wan have one of the greatest lightsaber battles in history. It is epic and it's moving and it's filled with emotion. And at the end of that lightsaber battle, you have Obi-Wan Kenobi with tears in his eyes shouting out to Anakin, Anakin, it's over. And so in this Obi-Wan series, there's this moment where you're, you're drawn into the future in the past with just one moment and one saying. Does that make sense? That it happens all throughout Star Wars. In every single film, like of the new three, the first one of the new three is blatantly just a ripoff of episode four. Like it just follows the same path. And you, you connect with it because it draws on something old and then reinterprets it for something new. Now the reason I share all that is because most likely there's a higher percentage of Star Wars nerds who know that lore intimately than there are Old Testament nerds in our community. Is that right? Yeah? Yeah. Okay, cool. That's okay. Own it. We're all in it together. And one of the things that Matthew does in particular, more so than Mark or Luke or John or any of the other Gospels, is Matthew goes at length to connect what Jesus is doing now with the Old Testament. He's dropping in almost like Easter eggs in the way that Jesus interacts. So that if you were an Old Testament nerd, if you knew your prophets, if you knew these ancient texts that Israel was supposed to have memorized by heart, when you know those and then you read Matthew, it's like reading Easter egg after Easter egg after Easter egg after Easter egg and you're just like, this is incredible. But a lot of us today, particularly thousands of years later, we can miss that. We notice it when Star Wars does it, but we can miss it when Matthew does it. And so today, at today's verses, rather than focus on just these stories of the two blind men and the two mute people who were possessed by demons, I want us to open up and look at the big picture of what Matthew has been doing. Matthew is a gospel. And right at the beginning of Matthew, he tells you why He's writing this. This is the story about Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah. So Matthew's goal is he's wanted to show the reader that as they read these stories, that Jesus is everything 
that Israel was hoping for, but not just Israel, that Jesus is everything that humanity has ever been hoping for, personified in a person, now here with us. And Matthew does that in lots of different ways. He does the genealogy, which is incredible, it's boring, but it's filled with Easter eggs that shape who the person of Jesus is. And on our story with where we are at, Matthew has just done two big segments. He does in Matthew chapter five through seven, he does the Sermon on the Mount, which shows Jesus to be the unparalleled teacher par excellence. Like no one is better at Jesus at diagnosing the problems of the human condition and giving clear pathways to find hope and life at the end of it. And at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, what does the crowd say? They were amazed because no one had ever taught like him. And then in Matthew chapter eight and nine, what we've spent the last two months going through, you find Matthew then doing something else. He's already shown that Jesus is an incredible teacher, but now in Matthew chapters eight and nine, Jesus puts his money where his mouth is, and he actually begins transforming things in a way that no one could ever expect. I mean, take a look. Matthew's chapter eight and nine, it's like miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, and they're incredible. They happen so fast over and over. It's almost like a machine gun of miracle stories. Quick, quick, quick. You've, I mean, can you remember these as we went through and preached them? You've got the leper who calls out to Jesus and is healed. No one had ever seen something like that in Israel before. The centurion's servant, a Roman oppressive leader, calls out for Jesus's help, and Jesus heals him, not even having to go close and touch him, but by the faith of the centurion, Jesus says, no, nah, your servant is healed. Go on your way. God is ministering to the far reaches of the empire. Then there's Peter's mother-in-law who's sick and fever. She can't even speak. And Jesus walks up, grabs her by the hand, and she's healed. Then there's the stormy sea. The disciples leave Capernaum and they head across the water to foreign land. And there's an incredible storm. And fishermen like Peter and James, they're overwhelmed. And they are terrified. And they call out to Jesus. And with a word, Jesus brings peace to the chaos of the elements. They get to the other side, and there's two demoniacs, incredibly powerful. The whole region was scared of them, and again, with just a word, the demons flee into a herd of pigs, and these people are set free. Then in chapter 9, we move into the story of the paralytic. Matthew shortens it down, but it's the one where the friends bring a paralytic to Jesus. And Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. That gets all the Pharisees uncomfortable because, let's be honest, it sounds a bit blasphemous. No one should be able to say that, right? But Jesus says, I can say it. And then he says to him, take courage, get up and walk. And then you have the deceased girl, a, fe- uh, a leader of the synagogue's daughter has died. Jesus goes, he shoes away the mourners even though they laugh at him, touches her by the hand, she's raised to life. There's a bleeding woman, 12 years been struggling with a touch of Jesus's cloak, she's healed. And now here at the final end, you have two blind men who call out to Jesus saying, son of David, have mercy on me. And they're healed. Two mute demoniacs call out to Jesus. Well, they don't call out because they're mute. They're brought to Jesus. And again, they're healed. And how does this whole section, chapters eight through nine, they're all building on the same thing over and over and over again. And it finishes with that phrase where the crowd says, nothing like this has ever been done in Israel before. Now we read that and we're like, cool, sounds good. 
Those are cool things. I like that Jesus heals. That makes me feel better. But if you're an Old Testament nerd, your ears are ringing. There's Easter eggs being dropped all throughout here, and you're remembering not just this story, but you're remembering the stories that lead up to this story. Does anyone know? There's a hint. Even in these passages, there's two things that help draw us into that. There's a hint where the blind men call out to Jesus, and they say, son of David. Again, we're like, cool, that's a weird thing to call Jesus because his father was Joseph, but not really Joseph, it was God. It's complicated, right? But son of David, I guess that's just a thing that they called him. But again, if you're an Old Testament nerd, like you are Star Wars nerds, the son of David is not just any title. Jesus normally refers to himself as the son of man, which is a reference to Daniel about this human who's going to be brought into the divine world of God and rule justly. But the son of David is different. The son of David is referenced all throughout the prophets, particularly Isaiah. Isaiah all the time calls out for this son of David who is going to come and rule. They're the, they're the passages that we read out every Christmas and never pay attention to the references for. Unto him a child will be born, a son will be given. He will be the son of David, wonderful counselor, mighty God. Isaiah all the time talks about this son of David. And son of David isn't just a generic cool Christian title. Son of David is like the sum of the hopes of a Messiah, someone who would come to deliver people from their brokenness, to bring a kingdom that is just to people that are oppressed by unjust political rulers. And these blind men finally call out. In Matthew, this is the first time that anyone refers to Jesus with this messianic language. You are the son of David. Now, there's a, there's a passage in Isaiah. If you're an Old Testament nerd, your ears are ringing. Does anyone know it? No, of course not. Isaiah is complicated. Who knows that, right? There's a passage in Isaiah 35. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Isaiah 35? Because what I want to do today is rather than just looking at that small text of the two stories of healing, I want us to take a big picture look at Matthew 8 and 9 and how that connects with Isaiah 35 and what that means for us today. So this is Isaiah 35. Now the prophets, something about the Old Testament. I know a lot of people find the Old Testament hard to read because it can be hard to read, right? Anyone else, just me? No, okay, you're afraid to show your hands. There we go, we got a few, yeah. There we go, thank you, Rowan. I see that hand and I've shamed you publicly, I apologize. Um, <laughs> the Old Testament can be hard to read because it's filled with context and references that we don't understand, but there's one thing that I love about the Old Testament. And that is, it is so incredibly human. It's so deeply relatable. The challenges and the problems that they face are not some random spiritual thing. When you read the problems of the Old Testament, you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. That sounds like humans. That sounds like things that are still happening today. And so before we read Isaiah 35, I want to talk to you, I want to tell you the story that Isaiah 35 comes to. Now, Isaiah is a prophet. And he's prophesying to Israel at the late stage of their kingdom. Now, everybody knows David, right? He's the great ruler, the king, and he unifies Israel under one kingdom. But again, this is the humanity of David, of the Old Testament. After David, you get Solomon, another cool leader, not quite as great as David, but still pretty good. And then what happens after that? Nation Israel has been unified under two kings. And after two kings... They get into a civil war. 
They cannot stand each other. The north and the south end up fighting, and they split into two regions, each claiming true kingship to the name of Israel. And so you get this northern nation of Israel and this southern nation of Judah. Now, if that's not human, I don't know what it is, right? Yeah, churches, we're all supposed to be unified, and then something comes and we hate each other, right? It's okay. It's in the Old Testament, too. So the people of God were separated. And so Isaiah is at the later stage. This separation has gone on for a long time. And Israel, which is supposed to be this light, this example of what God's kingdom and his life and his beauty is like, they have fallen very, very far from that image. The northern kingdom, particularly of Israel, has become incredibly compromised. They are worshiping countless other gods, They're abusing their own people. I mean, the prophets, if you read them, are filled with the prophets calling out the leadership of the kingdom, saying, stop being so corrupt. Stop taking money from the poor to build your own palaces higher. Stop using religion as an excuse to exert power over people. Stop taking from the poor to pad the the things of the rich. And one of the particular things that's really bad is that these kings who are trying to build power and alliances then go to other kingdoms asking for help and they build alliances with Egypt and they build alliances with Lebanon and they're, they're trying to build up their power and Isaiah's looking at it and he's like, Israel's supposed to be great. They're supposed to be the picture of hope in the world, the light on the hill, right? And they're the worst. And so Isaiah ends up prophesying against Israel and prophesying against Judah about the same thing. Stop worshiping other gods. Stop using your power to abuse the poor. Stop using religion as an excuse to do what you want and then give a sacrifice later saying, I'm sorry. Again, very human, right? Isaiah calls out against that again and again. And what you see at this moment at Isaiah is it's coming to a crisis. The northern kingdom is being eviscerated by a foreign power called the Assyrians. The Assyrians had become the dominant empire in the region, and they have swept through the north. They've taken captives. They've burnt vineyards. They've destroyed holy places, and cities are being put to ruin. And Israel ends up collapsing under the weight of the Assyrians. That northern kingdom goes out to exile, and to this day, we don't quite know what happens to them. Most of the stories of scripture that we have come not from the northern kingdom, but the southern kingdom of Judah. And Judah was not much better. In fact, right before this, in Isaiah 27 to 34, Isaiah is chewing out the the ruling powers of Judah. Why? Because they're doing the same thing. They're using their power to comfort themselves. They're using the sacrificial system to just do what God wants, but not actually any of the things that God calls us to do. And then Judah is going and it's making alliances with Egypt saying, hey, Egypt, look, if we worship your gods and we give you some money, will you help protect us against the Assyrians? And Isaiah is saying, why? Put your faith in God. Repent. Turn back to God, your protector and your carer. Turn away from the idols of this world. Don't live like them, but come back to the one who made you. That's not quite how it happens. Judah also doesn't listen. And the Assyrians come and they decimate their way through the region of Judah and they surround Israel, literally in a siege. And only at this moment, King Hezekiah repents. He calls to Isaiah and says, I have sinned before God and others. Please call out to the Lord of Israel to come and save us. 
And it's one of the most remarkable stories that happens right after this in chapter 36, where God supernaturally intervenes. He moves and he confuses the army of the Assyrians, and they all flee and run away, leaving only the city of Jerusalem remaining. And so it's to this passage that Isaiah begins to speak. He's speaking to a compromised kingdom. He's speaking to rulers who've sold out their inheritance and are going through a period of refining. They're going through struggle and pain and tribulation. And all throughout 27 to 34, Isaiah has been saying, these challenges that you're going through is but God's refining process. He's going to burn away all that is unhealthy, unsavory, and unfaithful. And what will remain is a small stump, a remnant from which I will bring life and hope. Right? So Isaiah says this to a compromised kingdom under foreign oppression, who've gone through a refining, painful period, and here Isaiah prophesies. Let's make our way through Isaiah 35, and look now that you know the context. Think about Matthew's context. Matthew is writing to Israel and a church under Roman oppression. He's writing to a church that has struggled with the religious state of Jerusalem, who are struggling with religious leaders who care more about the form and the function of religiosity than the heart that it actually engenders. And he's writing to people who have made compromises with the kingdom for their own gain. Can you notice the parallels? Isaiah's context, Israel, the church's context in the Gospel of Matthew, they're very similar. And now look at this message of hope and think about Matthew's chapter eight and nine. It says this, the desert and the parched land will be glad The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The desolate places that have been ruined by others, I will restore and redeem. I will bring life to the places of decimation. And now it says this, the glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord and the splendor of our God. Now, those references, Lebanon, those are foreign nations. And Isaiah is saying that once God comes, when God comes, the desolate places are going to have life again, and even the foreign nations are going to be able to see the glory of God. Now, think about Jesus' story in Matthew. Jesus comes to begin to meet people who are desolated by the empire and bring life. The foreign nations begin to see the glory of God. The Roman centurion, who's a symbol of the foreign empire, He has a view on the nature of Jesus. Keeps going. Strengthen feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. What has Jesus been doing for the past two chapters? Becoming to the fearful, the scared, and the lonely. And what's one of the most common things that Jesus has been saying in Matthew chapter 8 and 9 when he meets someone? He says, take heart. Take courage, my son or daughter. Do not fear. He comes to those who were scared. And Isaiah prophesies saying, he will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. And then the eyes of the blind will be opened. What happens in the very end of Matthew chapter 9? Two men who are blind have their eyes opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. At the beginning of chapter 9, who gets brought before Jesus but a paralytic who cannot walk, who gets up rejoicing on his way out. The mute tongue will shout for joy. How does this chapter finish? 
with two mutes speaking for the first time. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool and the thirsty ground will become bubbling springs. You get this picture of the very creation where it is hostile and raging and in chaos will be brought to peace under the power of Jesus. And what happens when Jesus goes onto a boat? The very forces of nature rage in chaos and what does Jesus do with a word? He brings peace. The haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. You read this, but you cannot help but think of those afflicted demoniacs, people who were haunted by jackals in desolate places. And Jesus comes, and with a word, he brings life back to them. A highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness, and it will be, vote, be for those who walk on that way. How does Jesus often describe his own mission and ministry? I am the way, the truth, and the life. There are two gates, the narrow and the wide. Everyone might go by the wide, but those who are faithful will come on the narrow gate. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go on about it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. All the places of danger that rule and reign and break us when we come into the way of Jesus, those are brought to peace and you will be safe in him. The redeemed will walk there and those that the Lord has rescued will return. It finishes with a beautiful passage of hope. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. And does this not but describe nearly every person who had an encounter with Jesus? As they meet with him, they cannot help but keep silent. In this passage with the two blind people, scholars argue about like, why didn't they listen to Jesus when he told them to be quiet? And some are like, they're disobedient. And th that could be, they weren't very obedient to what God had said, but you also can't help but get the picture of like, how could they keep silent? They've been blind their whole lives and they've had an encounter with life that they never thought they would experience and it's like they cannot help it. Gladness and joy will overtake them and the sorrow and the sadness and the sighing will flee away. Can you see all those parallels? Can you see how, because one of the things that Matthew does is Matthew takes some of Mark's stories and some of Luke's stories and adds some of his own and rearranges it to tell the story. Matthew has rearranged all these miracle stories to come into a passage so that anyone who knows these Old Testament prophecies, these Old Testament hopes, read them and cannot help but have their ears buzzing because it's like scripture's coming alive. A people under foreign oppression, corrupt governments, who are supposed to be standing for God but using that for their own power, who are calling out for something better, Isaiah says that will be refined and it will pass away. And in its place will come someone who will restore and redeem, set everything up to the way it was meant to be, to bring life and real life. And so when I read these passages and I read as we conclude these sections in Matthew before Jesus goes on to this new, this new story, um, he goes into a new bit of teaching, you can't help but get excited about this incredible message of hope. That though things might be difficult, and though we might struggle under corrupt and unjust systems, 
God will refine those. And in its place, he himself will come. And when he comes, everything will be grounded around him. And the hopes that we have longed for our whole life will come to pass. Because of him drawing near. Now, that's all good theology and that's good scriptural work and that's biblical work. What does that mean for us today? What does that mean for you and for me? Well, the truth is what I love about the Old Testament is that it's very human. It deals with the reality of selfishness, corruption, people who use faith in power for their own selfish gain. It grapples with that honestly. And it says that those things will be refined. And that refinement might not be comfortable. But as we go through that refining process, God will draw near. And what he builds and births in us will be far more beautiful than what was there previously. What he builds in us will be everlasting. And that can happen in different spaces. That can happen on for us on an individual level. Often many of us will go through struggles and trials and tribulations, and one of the questions that we most often ask God in that space is, God, where are you? Why have you not come and helped here? Why have you allowed this horrible thing to happen? Don't you care? To this, I think Isaiah and Matthew would give us a challenging word of hope, saying, there are seasons where we go through where God will lead us through difficulty. That's not easy to say. That's not comfortable to hear in the West. But God has always led people through seasons of refinement. Fire is never a comfortable thing to go through. But suffering and pain refines. And what God can do is he can then break away all the brokenness. I'm thinking of Chris's passage. Uh, Chris, the word you shared today, the elephant with the rope. That refinement passage is God going and setting fire to the post and to the rope, to the things that we think we need, God lets those burn so that we can experience true freedom in his kingdom. And so if you are going through a season of suffering or pain, I come to you with a message of hope that suffering is not pointless or needless. God is working in your life now. He is refining and he is shaping. And if you allow him and you call out to him, he will birth something beautiful within you, something that lasts eternally. But that's not just true for us individually. I think this passage is also true for us in a corporate sense. One of the great dangers of the church is we are human, just like Israel of the Old Testament was. And like Israel, we, the church, can also become complicit, complacent, corrupted. One of the great dangers throughout history is that the church makes too much comfort with the empires and the systems of its day. We take on the idols of the world. Sure, we don't do it like in Baal. Sure, Israel might have done it with Baal and foreign kingdoms. They worship those idols because they think that will give them hope. We do it with different things. Maybe it's performance. Maybe it's growth. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's control. Maybe we wed ourselves to whatever will get us the most platform. And we assume that's what God wants. And we'll do anything we can to justify getting there. It's the same idolatry that Israel did. God will often take his church through seasons of refining. And if I'm honest, I think the past two years, especially for the church in the West, has been a refining season. 
As COVID has hurt us, shaped us, stripped away a whole bunch of stuff we thought was necessary, we couldn't gather in the ways that we used to. We couldn't worship in the ways that we're used to. We didn't have comfortable, nice buildings with air cons to worship in. We had nasty, small screens with really bad sound, and it was lame, wasn't it? It was painful. We go through mandate seasons where we're suddenly forced to reckon with, is this vaccine going to become the thing that divides us? There is a refining that the church has gone through. I also can't help but think of how uh, the bigger churches that are going through the stories right now, we're thinking of Hillsong and their journey that they've had to go through with Brian Houston, thinking of Arise here in New Zealand and the journey that they've had to go through. Now again, that's not to say that everything that the media reports is 100% accurate, but there's a refining there. What happens when growth at all costs becomes our idol? Who gets hurt along the way? The states had the reckoning with this with uh, Mark Driscoll and the Mars Hill Church back in 2015. It becomes very easy for us to become complacent on those things. God does refine us, and that's not comfortable. But there's a message of hope in that refinement. And it's what all of these miracles in Matthew 8 and 9 are trying to say which is that though we feel trapped in systems that we feel like will never change, though we feel like, oh, that's a, this is a systemic issue, the church can never face it, we're gonna be stuck in this pain forever and ever, we'll always be stuck with corrupt leaders and corrupt influences, and my life will always be in this space, Matthew would say, no. Though we go through refinement, that is not the end of the story. Because God does not leave us alone in our suffering. He did not leave Israel alone when they were beaten and bruised by foreign powers. He did not leave Israel alone under Roman oppression. God is drawing close. God is himself is coming near. He will not wait for some other foreign leader or ruler to do it. He himself steps into our shoes in the person of Jesus. He becomes human just as we are, but he lives as humanity was meant to live. And he shows us a different way of being that sparks life wherever it goes. To the leper, to the bleeding woman, to the dead child, to the blind who cannot see, to the mute who felt like they had no voice, God draws close. And when he draws close, there is life. Mal and team, do you want to come up? We'll look at finishing here. having a good time in there, aren't they? It's good. So today I want to give you a message of hope. Whether you are in a personal season of refinement and pressure like Israel was, and you're asking those questions, God, where are you? Today I want to say to you, God has not left you, but he is walking with you in the midst of that fire. And he, if you let him, will be doing a work in you that will bring life, deep life, he will burn away the things that are holding you back, and in its place will be things that are solid, things that will last. And for us as a church, as we struggle with the refining season that we're going in, the pressure that we're facing from an increasingly secular society, whether that be huge international headlines or stories that are much closer to home, there's hope in the midst of that because God has not left us. But the story that Matthew is trying to tell is the exact opposite. It's that God is near. 
And because he is near, there's hope. So today, church, God, in Jesus, God is drawing close to you. Put your trust and your hope in him. Don't fight him. Don't run from him. Open yourself up. Be like the blind who say to him, have mercy on us, son of David. And he will draw close. And what he builds will last. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you that you have always been the answer to our hopes. When Isaiah prophesied about you thousands of years ago, you were the hope that Israel needed. When you came to Israel in the person of Jesus, and as Matthew and as the eyewitnesses recorded your stories of what you did, Jesus, you were the hope that they needed. And today, to us, 2,000 years later, to a church and a people that are also going through a refining period, we again confess afresh today that, Jesus, you are the hope that we need. For those who are in that season of refining right now, the pressures from the world are pressing in and the fires are, are painful and difficult. Lord, I pray that you would let them know that they are not far from you, but you are close to them. That in the midst of their difficulty, you are working something beautiful. And for us as a church, corporately and socially, us at Golden Sands, but also the wider church of your people across this nation, as we go through refining periods, as we have to grapple with stories of what we've done that are not faithful and good, as we face the pressure of outside influences from media and social media, Lord, I pray that we will not run from those, but we will allow you to refine us. We continue to pray that you would always burn away what is not faithful. Break away the things that are idolatrous and form within us something pure and good, grounded in you. So you, Jesus, we place our hope in today.